It's 7.43. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Chuck Anzalevich. For many black communities, music is an essential component of -of end-of-life rituals. When a loved one dies, families often call on a singer to perform at a funeral as a way to offer comfort and healing. Singing at a funeral makes it all come together. Even though you are grieving, you're also able to rejoice and celebrate that person. That story and more coming up on this West Virginia Morning. The DHHR secretary responded on Sunday to a consultant's report on how to improve the massive agency's outcomes. Randy Yoey has more. During a Sunday interim session of the legislature, leaders from the McChrystal Group broke down a $1 million top-to-bottom reorganization study for the Legislative Oversight Commission on Health and Human Resources Accountability. The study highlights a plan to improve leadership and communication, to better address child welfare, substance use disorders, and workforce retention. DHHR Secretary Bill Crouch responded by saying he supports the study's recommendations to help get West Virginia out of being last in so many national statistics. I want help. This has all been in kind of limbo because and I can't hire people to come into a department and say, you might get split and you might lose your job. Crouch said improving management, not money, is the key to workforce retention. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yowie. In a Sunday meeting, members of the legislature's Select Committee on Infrastructure heard about connecting more West Virginia towns with roads meant for outdoor vehicles like ATVs. Shepard Snyder has more. Representatives from organizations like the Hatfield-McCoy Regional Recreation Authority said some of the state's ATV trails aren't connected to local towns. Riders and tourists regularly use state highways instead, causing safety concerns. Executive Director Jeffrey Lusk says more of these roads would also help connect even more towns in southern West Virginia to the state's outdoor tourism economy. These towns have built up restaurants, lodging, ATV rental companies around the fact that we connect to the towns. Delegate John Hardy, a Republican from Berkeley County, expressed interest in a potential economic impact study on more outdoor vehicle infrastructure for the next legislative session. 17 towns in the state are currently connected to the Hatfield-McCoy trail system. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg. Today marks the 52nd anniversary of the plane crash that killed 75 people, including 36 members of the Marshall University football team. The accident remains the worst sports tragedy in American history. Offensive line coach Al Corelli Jr. died in the crash. His son, Vince, was only three years old. At noon, Vince Corelli will be the featured speaker at the annual fountain ceremony on campus. During the event, the fountain is turned off for the winter, and the lives of those lost on the flight are remembered. Corelli's mother, Marty, was instrumental in documenting early memories as well as the events surrounding the crash for Vince and his younger brother, Ron, who was three months old at the time. She wrote a book entitled Halftime, which began with a letter written to each of her sons after the crash. The ceremony is open to the public, and it will also be live-streamed. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in our region. Here's their latest story on coal ash cleanup sites. A new report concludes industry isn't doing enough to clean up coal ash dumps. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapple. 
Most of the waste created after coal is burned for electricity have been dumped over the years in unlined ponds and landfills. Coal ash contains toxic metals and other dangerous pollutants that can contaminate ground and surface water. The report from Earth Justice and the Environmental Integrity Project concludes that 96% of coal plants aren't planning to effectively clean up their coal ash dumps that are regulated under a federal rule established seven years ago. I asked Abel Russ, a co-author of the report, what EPA's coal ash rule requires. It's a self-implementing rule, which means every coal plant owner is supposed to follow a series of steps, and it starts with groundwater monitoring. And then if you find contamination, it goes through a series of steps that accelerate up to corrective action or cleanup. And what that means is evaluating all of the options in something called an assessment of corrective measures, which is like creating a menu of cleanup options, and then you're supposed to select a final remedy at the end of that process and start implementing that remedy. And, you know, in Pennsylvania, as I understand it, nobody has selected a remedy yet. Nationally, we're seeing most sites aren't there yet. So that's part of the problem that we're seeing. According to the report, how are coal plant operators violating or skirting the rule to avoid cleaning up these coal ash waste sites? One of the most common ways is failing to acknowledge that you're subject to the rule. So at the Newcastle site, West Pittsburgh, for example, It's one of the ones we feature in our report because it's one of the most contaminated sites in the country. They have a huge ash pond that's sitting there with a new ash landfill on top of it, and they're only applying the rule to the landfill on top. So we see that a lot. Owners pretend that a site is not covered by the rule, or they carve a landfill up into different pieces and say only the newest part of it is covered by the rule, when really it's just one landfill and the whole thing should be covered. Then you see a lot of games with monitoring, like where they put the wells. They might put some background wells that are supposed to show clean background conditions. They might stick those right on the edge of a landfill where they're likely to be contaminated by the landfill. So that messes up all the statistics and you don't see evidence of contamination in the downgrading wells because your point of comparison is artificially high. Is the coal ash rule working at all? Yes. And I do want to stress that because there were a few goals of the coal ash rule. One was simply to make data available, and that has been incredibly successful. We have a ton of data that we didn't have before. When EPA wrote the coal ash rule in 2015, the agency wasn't sure how many coal ash ponds and landfills were built into the groundwater where it's more likely to leak. It's a huge risk factor. If groundwater is touching the ash, it's going to constantly suck the metals out of the ash and bring them into the environment. Another goal of the coal ash rule was to close leaking and unlined ash ponds. And that's also been pretty successful because there are a lot of unlined ash ponds that are in the process of closing. Some of them have closed, some of them are in the process of closing, and some of them are scheduled to be closed within the next few years. So that's been successful. It's the cleanup part of the rule that's really not working yet. I don't personally put much blame on EPA because I think they crafted a rule that is actually pretty self-explanatory and it makes sense. I think it's the industry that's just not following it correctly that's the big source of the problem. Abel Russ is senior attorney at the Environmental Integrity Project. Dan Chartier, executive director of Utility Solid Waste Activities Group, says the report represents a gross mischaracterization of both the rule and the industry's implementation of the rule, and the facilities are not hiding contamination. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsoppel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. It's 7.51. You're listening to West Virginia Morning.
It's going to be mostly sunny across the mountain state today with high temperatures ranging from the upper 30s in the northern mountains to the upper 40s in the southwest. Increasing cloudiness tonight with lows in the mid-20s to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, rain likely in the west. A mix of rain, freezing rain, and possibly some wet snow in the higher elevations to the east. Highs tomorrow will be in the mid-30s to the mid-40s. Support for this weather forecast is provided by the attorneys at Torreseva Law, representing firefighters, police officers, and West Virginia families. Information at torresavalaw.com. For many black communities, music is an essential component of -of end-of-life rituals. When a loved one dies, families often call on a singer to perform at a funeral as a way to offer comfort and healing. Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Licia Lee spoke with her cousin, Michelle Dias, about being a funeral singer in Charleston. Michelle has probably sang at every single funeral that I've attended that has been someone related to us. And we have a large, large family. And Michelle is just our go-to singer. While on others now are calling. But in the Charleston community, when someone passes away, it's pretty common to see Michelle going up to the pulpit to sing. Singing at a funeral makes it all come together. Even though you are grieving, you're also able to rejoice and celebrate that person. I'm no longer bound. No more chains holding me. My soul is resting. Michelle says that the history in funeral singing is tied to the slave era. It's in our roots, in our blood. It became a way to express how they really felt about their loved ones and basically how it should have been in their life, understanding that there's a greater glory because now they were ascending to heaven, which was something far greater than what they experienced here on earth. So it became a ritual for us to hold on to, and it still is like it today. The way Michelle got started singing at funerals is somebody heard her singing at church. Singing at church was when I had first, I don't know if you would call it an engagement for a funeral, but it's when I was first asked, you know, could you sing at so-and-so's funeral? Michelle's voice is, and she does not give herself enough credit, her voice is simply angelic. So much pain. And it is powerful and it is strong, but at the same time it is very peaceful and relaxing. And the things that she can do with her voice is, I mean, it's definitely a gift. And that gift she uses, you know, as a power to promote healing for families. For me, being a singer, it is important to exemplify healing. You have a responsibility to heal and to comfort, to give hope and to give joy. And I think that makes a great 
funeral that makes you leave with a sense of hope, a sense of dignity, a sense of peace and love, and and just to be able to carry on after you've experienced something such as traumatic as death sometimes. She doesn't just like sing a song. She actually ministers to the family. When she's singing, she'll sometimes change the lyrics to the name of the person that passed away, or she'll change them to the name of the family or speak to a specific situation that the person who's deceased may have went through but i'll say thank you not only does she engage the audience she uses the song to let them know that brighter days are ahead some people are so effective in your life when they go. It's like, how am I supposed to pick up the pieces to move forward? And songs and music is so powerful that it can actually pick you up and put you where you need to be. And that's what people want. And in black funerals, it's important for us to feel that because of all the infirmities and all of the weight that we've carried all these long years. It's important for us to understand that it won't always be like this, that somehow in some way, better days are coming. I think the thing that makes Michelle absolutely amazing at this is that she genuinely does it out the kindness of her heart. She does not charge. She does it because she feels that that is her gift and that is her way to help the family move on in their time of grief. She believes that that's her gift and that's what she's supposed to do. His face. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Leisha Lee in Charleston, West Virginia. That story recently aired on Inside Appalachia. You can hear a longer version of that story at our website at wvpublic.org. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day at our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Amelia Nicely, Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick, Randy Yoey, and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Chuck Anzalevich. This is West Virginia Morning.